Welcome to Subversion. Subversion is a podcast dedicated to exploring big ideas, pushing against accepted opinion, and just maybe inciting more creative subversion in society. I'm your host, Zach Slayback, and Subversion is a project of 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund supports teams led by young founders with grant, pre-seed, and seed stage funding, as well as a network of hundreds of collaborators, mentors, and peers. I'm joined today by 1517 Fund co-founder and general partner, Michael Gibson. Michael and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Jason Brennan. Jason Brennan is a philosopher at Georgetown University, and we got to talk a little bit about Jason's new book, When All Else Fails. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm good. Fun to talk to Jason. Oh, this was this is a this is a book that I find that I think what people will think of it is either it is totally intuitive and common sense, or it is the most offensive thing that they have read this year. Well, why don't we start with a, an example, and uh, listeners can decide whether or not they think the two cases that we describe are are comparable. So, a shooter in the park. A masked man emerges from a black van holding a rifle. He starts shooting at children in a public park. And a bystander has a gun. She kills him before he kills any innocent children. Now, most people, uh, I think when they hear that, they would say that uh, she acted uh, permissibly, most likely, right? And then they might even say she acted. If not praiseworthily. Right, if not heroically. Um, So then imagine a, a, a different situation. Um, you know, some of the details are the same, but some are different. This time, Anne witnesses a police officer stop a minivan with a female driver and three children in the back. Anne sees that the driver has nothing in her hands and her hands are on the steering wheel. The police officer emerges from his car and starts shooting at the van's windows. Anne has a gun. She fires at the police officer before he shoots any of the children. Now, I suppose, you know, and a, how are the two cases different? People hear those two things and they might say, well, the, um, the police are very different from private citizens and there are all sorts of reasons that we should respect the authority of the police. And so even though prima facie, it looks like the police is doing something wrong, we should, we should trust the police. And so uh, we'll leave it to our listeners to decide what the differences might be and to listen to Jason and, and even read his book, which is amazing. Highly recommend everyone read it. But uh, Jason makes the argument that uh, what private citizens can do in defending themselves against uh, other private citizens, they can also do uh, in defense against government agents. I think a distinction that's really important when people are coming into this conversation today, and I'm, I, I don't think we made it in the conversation with Jason, but mm. he goes to great lengths in the book to make this distinction is we are talking about what is permissible, not necessarily what is strategically intelligent right. or Prudent what necessarily or... is heroic, right? Right. You could, you, like Anne, you could uh, shoot the cop and perfectly acting justly, but then, uh, you know, this policeman's uh, uh, co-workers who are very loyal to him might descend on you and kill you. One of the interesting things is he, he told, I believe he tells us that he had to change some of the, some of the details of some of these cases because they're based on, on real life. Um, and the publisher didn't want them so close to, to what happened in reality. So we'll, we'll let people decide which one this which real life example this one sounds like 
Uh, it's called Drunk Party Goer. Rodney has too much to drink at a party. He runs around the house with a tiki torch, loudly yelling, Look, everyone, I'm the human torch. Four partygoers chase him outside to stop him from accidentally starting a fire. In their anger, they knock him down. They continuously kick his face and stomach and beat him with bats and sticks. Anne sees that Rodney is subdued and sees that the men beating him are carrying pistols, though they aren't using them. She pulls out her gun and yells for them to stop, but they ignore her. Finally, she pulls out her own weapon and shoots one of them in order to stop the beating as well as possibly save Rodney's life. The second case with, with some alterations. Rodney, intoxicated after a night spent drinking, starts speeding on the highway. The cops try to pull him over. He ignores them, and then a high-speed chase ensues. When the cops finally pull him over, they do not merely yank him out of the car and arrest him. Rather, even after he is subdued and lying prostrate on the ground, they take turns clubbing him with their batons. Anne witnesses the beating and yells for them to stop. The police ignore her. Finally, she pulls out her own weapon and shoots one of them in order to stop the beating as well as possibly save Rodney's life. So that was a drawing on the uh, Rodney King, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, incident way back in the 90s that, that was really marked the beginning of a whole new era in, I don't know, like civics and uh, technology because it was one of the first police beatings that was, was videotaped. And, and now with the proliferations of phones and, and other devices, we, we're starting to see um, more and more of them. I guess it's an open question whether or not, you know, there's an increase in the number of these things. Like maybe the, the police are getting more uh, aggressive in their, in their methods. Uh, or is it just the case that now that we have uh, ways of documenting it, it's, it's getting picked up more. But uh, what I love about Jason's book and, and what makes it so clear is that he's able to... Um, uh, you know, it, it relies on your moral intuitions about these kinds of cases. So he'll present different versions of different sorts of activities and, and pair them side by side with slight alterations. And, and then you're going to react to them based on, based on the, the descriptions. And, and so he's, he's methodical in laying the limits of his argument, in defining his terms, and, and, and making no claims that stretch beyond the, the premises that he's establishing. And he's just so scrupulous about that. It's really impressive. I think it's important before somebody goes in, uh, if you're a skeptical reader in particular to this book, a couple of the things that he's not arguing for here, and he points these out right. in the first chapter. He says that he's not arguing for anarchism. Right. He's not arguing for libertarianism or classical liberalism, and he's not assuming that those positions are true. And then also... And this is one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to recommend this book in particular. He's also not arguing for any particular moral theory or assuming that the reader has any particular moral theory. Yeah. A lot of what he is arguing from, he calls common sense, but then he pulls on English and Commonwealth common law as kind of like the, the place where we can turn to and say, okay, it, this is something that is justifiable in these action, in these cases. Right, And this is why it is justifiable if we look to English common law as this, as this institution that's developed over many hundreds of years to resolve conflicts. So why don't we just carry it to its natural common sense conclusions, right? So he's not arguing from Kantianism. He's not arguing from utilitarianism. He's not arguing right. from any of these you know, very esoteric, abstract positions and arguing down. He's arguing from what we already agree on. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's very effective. I happen, yeah, I don't, I don't know if this has a genre. It's something like intuition-based philosophy where you start with what we agree on and then uh, move from there to implications that might be surprising as well as bold. You know, there's some famous works of political theory that start that way and uh, and I happen to like it. So, I mean, the counter argument would be, oh, your intuitions about these things are all messed up and you shouldn't trust the history of the common law because my theory of uh, my Kantian deontological theory is correct and just. And therefore, you know, let's say the, the famous case of, uh, you know, the Nazis coming to your door and asking for uh, the location of people you know to be hiding in your in your basement, you know, according to some interpretations of Kant, uh, they say Kant would, would would argue you have to tell the truth in that instance, and but those goes, are incorrect interpretations too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as Jason has a footnote in there, and talked about it a little bit. But uh, but yeah, if you bit the bullet, you would have to reject you know ninety eight percent of the world's intuitions on this, um, which I don't think is going to be very persuasive. You know, one of the things that the cases bring out that I think is is, is a topic I'd like to touch on, and and what really brought this book alive for me was. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how to change institutions, <clears throat> idea, how, how to reform our uh, various uh, laws, institutions, and customs, and, and, and norms. And uh, the, the canonical work on this, especially in Silicon Valley that people bring up all the time, is Albert Hirschman's Exit Voice and Loyalty, which is a classic work. Uh, and, and the title speaks to the, the different ways of changing things. So you know, our voice is something uh, we're doing here, perhaps, uh, on, a, on a very small level, but also really just using the ballot, voting, uh, protesting in the streets, writing letters, complaining to authorities of various sorts, and, and, and demanding change through those methods. And then exit is, uh, you know, that defines like voting with your feet. So I go to Starbucks, the coffee tastes terrible, and I can decide to uh, protest against Starbucks by by choosing, by taking my business elsewhere. You might be able to do that on a local level. You hate the schools in your town, so you move somewhere else. Um, and then likewise, uh, you might even leave, leave the country. You know, empirical question, which method is most effective for uh, bringing about the change? But one thing that, that I find very invigorating about Jason's work is that he presents this, this fourth option that no one has talked about, which is just resistance, which is, you know, perhaps there are unjust laws and you have no moral obligation to follow them, and you don't, and, and maybe because of the immediacy, or maybe for other reasons, you, you can't use your voice, and you certainly can't exit. If you think of any of those cases we just read, it doesn't make sense to say, oh, you know, I don't like the way that cop is treating that person. I'm going to choose to live somewhere else. You know, if, if, it could be the case that, that you need to act right there and then and resist. And so, uh, you know, I find that inspiring. Um, you know, I think of uh, a lot of laws out there, especially as it re relates to uh, vested interests, people insiders who have gained uh, control of, of uh, the economy in one sort of way by extracting rents from uh, laws in their favor. And, uh, and I wonder if resistance is an option that people don't really uh, explore as much as they should. Well, thanks for uh, joining us, 
Jason Brennan for our uh, subversionist podcast, as we call it. Uh, we like to bring people on to discuss uh, controversial ideas or contrarian views. And uh, I, I think your book fits that category uh, perfectly. So I'd love it if uh, maybe to start off, you could give us an overview of your new book. Good. Thanks. And thanks for having me. So the book, When All Else Fails, uh, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice, is trying to defend what seems like radical conclusions on the basis of common sense moral thinking. And the premise of the book is really quite simple, or the, I'm sorry, the conclusion of the book is really quite simple. It's that the theory of self-defense, like the conditions under which you can defend yourself um, from government agents are also the, exactly the same conditions under which you can defend yourself from civilians. There's no reason to give them greater deference. If a government agent commits injustice, you can treat them as if they were a civilian committing that same injustice. So it's just uh, self-defense is the same for everybody. So are, are, is that a coextensive uh, set of descriptions of, of what's morally permissible or, or prohibited in the sense of like, if, if a private citizen can or can't do X in situation Y, then a government agent can't either. Are there any instances where that's not true? Well, you know, there, there are cases for things like uh, maybe we should pay our taxes for certain kinds of uh, public goods or something like that. And when there's some sort of organized system for providing that, you should pay into the system that best does it. And so, you know, if I came up to you and said, I'm collecting $500 for the road, you would have a reason to, to suspect that I'm not really doing that. <laughs> okay, right. You know, but ultimately that comes down to, that, that doesn't be not as interesting as it seems, because if it turned out that the government wasn't providing for the roads and your neighbors were, then there'd be an argument that you would have an obligation to pay them too. Uh, but beyond like kind of simple cases like that, I'm thinking about things like, um, you know, if I were to order you to go kill your neighbor, like to go kill someone in a foreign country, you wouldn't, you'd be allowed to ignore that order and also resist if I tried to force you. So I'm going to argue that if the U.S. government produces that same exact order, you can ignore the order and resist if necessary to get away. Um, if, you know, if a police officer is having a bad day and uses excessive force, I think you're allowed to defend yourself against them. If you knew that, uh, say, a government agent is about to order like a drone strike that will kill a lot of innocent people, which isn't justified, then you're allowed to interfere with that drone strike by, say, destroying the property or even assassinating the person who's making the order. Uh, so what I really try to do in the book is argue, here's like 25 cases or so where most people think it would be permissible for you to intervene to stop a civilian from committing a horrible act. And then I give, about, I give parallel cases involving government agents doing the same thing. And then I ask, is there any real difference? And most people think there is, but I try to argue there isn't. Interesting. Well, when you say most people, I, I have to admit, yeah, I haven't gotten my hands on the book yet. I've read some articles and listened to one or uh, another interview you've done. Are there any, are there famous philosophers or are there positions that are well-respected where people would separate the two, that government actors can act in ways that private actors can't in these situations? Sure. So I think it is part of common sense morality that uh, we make we have a difference between government actors and most people. And I, I can see that because I've created a Facebook page and I've been writing a bit of a few things online and I get angry emails and angry people saying, no, no, you have to defer to the cops. If, you know, if the cops tell you to do something, you just have to do it. If we decide to make marijuana possession illegal, then you just simply have to conform to that law period. Uh, so right. the average people do think that, but I think, you know, philosophers have a hard time with this. So say my, my former colleague, David Esland, has a paper about following unjust orders and he he tries to argue that imagine that you're a jailer and you know that the person that has been convicted is innocent 
Like he's like, you're not, we're not like saying you suspect that they're innocent. He says, you know, for sure that he's innocent. God himself has told you this person's innocent or whatever, whatever you want it to be. So you know for sure the person's innocent, but you also, um, like he was convicted by a, a fair trial. So the trial went properly. It just got the wrong answer. He thinks you have an obligation to put that person in jail um, and not to let huh. them. And I think you have the obligation to let them escape. That's interesting. I do remember way back, way, way back, I was at an IHS seminar and uh, Randy Barnett was talking. The question he asked at the time is, do we have a moral obligation to follow unjust laws? Um, so I guess, I guess the, your book is sort of like a, a subfield within that general topic. Yeah, that's right. And the question here, it's, it's really a puzzle whether there's an obligation to follow the law, period. I mean, philosophers have spent 2,500 years trying to devise theories that are meant to explain why you have a duty to follow the law. And a duty to follow the law has to be an obligation to follow the law because it is the law. So to give you an example of that, um, if I were to say right now, everyone listening to this, I, Jason Brennan, hereby command you not to murder your neighbor, you do have an obligation to follow what I've commanded, but you don't have a duty to do it because I said so. Like my issuing that command is morally inert. And many of the laws that we follow are like that as well. Um, you should follow the law that forbids murder or maybe follow speed limit laws because you just have a pre-existing obligation not to kill people and not to impose reckless, uh, not to be reckless in your driving and impose unfair danger upon others. So some of these laws, you know, you, you abide by them, but not because they're the law per se. So they have to be like the government creates a law and in virtue of that law being there, you now have a reason to act. Um, so the problem is it's, it's not really clear whether any of the various theories that people have produced over the past 2,500 years can justify even something as simple as an obligation to pay taxes. I mean, I think hmm. even though philosophers are not anarchists, I think probably the dominant position in philosophy right now is that it's okay for government to exist. It's permissible for them to force people to do things, but there's not really a duty to obey the law per se. Hmm. I, think, I think there's an even greater burden than that. It's one thing to show that maybe you have a duty to abide, to pay your taxes or to uh, you know, go to jury duty when you're called or to follow the speed limit. What people who are defending the other side need to do <clears throat> is show that there's specifically a duty to defer to government agents when they commit severe injustices, the very injustices for rights violations that we would be justified in using violence or deception to stop civilians from committing. So it's one thing to say, you know, in 1850, uh, you know, you have to pay your taxes it's, or that when the government engages in eminent domain, you have to relinquish your property. That's one, that's mm -hmm. one burden. But it's an even greater burden to say in 1850, you know, you have to let uh, government marshals enforce the Dred Scott decision, that you have to allow uh, right. government, the army to forcibly relocate Native Americans to Oklahoma, that you have to uh, kill some, a bunch of innocent people because your commanding officer says to have a drone strike there, or that you have to allow yourself to be thrown in jail because you were smoking a plant that makes you happy. <laughs> so, so it sounds like you start with some fairly uh, common sense cases where maybe people would agree where in the, in let's say English common law, there are some uh, traditions and customs that have been passed down over time on when self-defense is permissible and the use of violence in those instances. And, and maybe most people would agree in those, but it sounds like you have some other cases involving deception and perhaps cheating or subverting uh, where the uh, injustice or the injustice being perpetrated by the government is, is very acute and severe. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, in a sense, I'm relying upon the background theory of self-defense that most people accept. And they dispute the fine details of it, but they accept the general outline. And so the outline of it is very simply, 
uh, a defender can use some sort of defensive action, whether it's lying, uh, deceit, sabotage, the destruction of property, or even violence against another person. If doing so is necessary to prevent the attacker from committing a severe harm or some sort of severe injustice. And there are questions about, well, just how much, you know, at what point are you allowed to switch from say deceit to violence? Exactly how severe does a harm have to be? There's a question about what exactly necessity counts as. Um, so, you know, the, the common law tradition doesn't hold that the damage has to be immediate. If you're, so if I lock you in my basement for six days and you think I'm gonna kill you on the sixth day, you can fight back on the first day. Um, usually necessity means something like you're not allowed to use a violent action when a nonviolent mm. action is equally as effective and you're not allowed to use say deceit if something that isn't deceitful is equally as effective. Yeah, it sounds like one of the key elements is also this uh, credibility or, or the probability that, you know, that this action is going to, this unjust action is going to take place. So if you know for certain, it's not really about time and geography even. It's really just about probability. So if you knew with 100% certainty that, you know, something unjust was going to happen in, in 100 days, then on your theory, would it be permissible to, to stop it? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think, I think we would say that about most other cases. It's really just about the knowledge that it's going to occur. You're right. So what I, what I try to do is like say like there are these kind of parallel cases, um, you know, just to give you a stock example. And some of them are maybe more serious than others. This one's maybe a bit more amusing. You know, imagine that I've come to believe that caffeine is really bad for people, and I say I'm going to lock anyone who, who consumes caffeine in my town, in my basement for 30 days as punishment for caffeine ingestion. Um, and then I break into your house and see you drinking coffee and decide to throw you in, in, in my basement. <laughs> you, yeah. would, you would think it would be permissible to use deadly violence to stop me from doing that, and it would be. So then what if uh, the government does the same thing with regard to marijuana? Is there a real difference? Um, and someone might say, well, the government means well, which I think historically is simply not true. I mean, mm. The history of marijuana criminalization is just overtly racist. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean well, there's a lot of rent seeking involved, but they made this decision to criminalize marijuana. And now like you're smoking in the comfort of your house and police officers break in, you know that there's a good chance that if they um, put you in jail, it's going to ruin your life, maybe you'll lose your job. And it occurs to you maybe that there's some chance of you escaping because of, by using violence to get away. Are you allowed to use violence? I think it would be, in many cases, deeply imprudent to do so because they will, uh, you know, they'll send a SWAT team to kill you. <laughs> right. It's not likely to work, but I don't think you owe it to the police officers in question to allow them to arrest you for this. Right. So then, That's or, you know, Alan Turing was forced to undergo chemical castration right. because he was a homosexual. I think, once again, it'd be perfectly permissible for him to say, deceive the government agents to thinking he was complying with the law. Um, if he could have avoided arrest by killing the uh, police officers who were trying to arrest him and that would have allowed him to escape, I think that would have been permissible. And you'd have to treat the police officers the same as if they were just private people doing this. If, if I were a book review editor, I think I'd have some police officer or someone review the book just to see what they say. Has anyone from law enforcement approached you and, and, and what do they say? Well, yeah, interesting question. So I presented this in, uh, in the UK. Uh, and for whatever reason, like some of the, one of the PhD students at the university I was at, the University of Sheffield, was a former police officer in the UK. And he actually ended up agreeing with me. And he said, oh, this is a problem with you Americans. Like your police officers are just unusually violent and authoritarian. Um, <laughs> and we, and we know better, and which is empirically true. And we know, we know better than this and we keep our hands off. But I don't know if you endorse all the radical conclusions. Uh, I got an email from a person who was a use of force instructor, uh, mm. like right after the uh, an article about this in Ian magazine came out, 
And uh, he said, you know, you're going to get people killed. That's the problem with this. He's like, I'm not even saying necessarily the theory is wrong, but just, you know, people are going to follow this and they're going to get killed. Uh, and there's something to that. And this, this is really, I, I try to take pains to be careful about mm. this book. And I say, what I'm doing here is trying to talk about what are the conditions under which resistance is permissible. Um, mm -hmm. Saying it's permissible is not the same thing as saying that it's prudent. Uh, if a police right. arrests you, you probably won't get away and it's very dangerous for you to resist in most cases. Um, if you see someone choking Eric, someone like Eric Garner to death, I think it's permissible to intervene to stop them, but it might be imprudent because they'll probably send a SWAT team after you. Uh, so there's that problem. There's also the problem of people might misapply the theory. That's one of the claims people make. You know, you say, this, this is not an objection people make, not just to this theory, but to any moral theory. So there's a, a, a moral theory called utilitarianism that says, an action is right just in case it produces the best possible consequences, all things considered. And um, one of the objections people make to it is that, oh, sure, but you know, if you tell the average person to do that, they're horrible at calculating consequences and will make lots of mistakes. And so utilitarians respond by saying, you're right about that, but you're misunderstanding what a theory is for. Our goal is to explain what makes an action right and wrong. It's not to give you a decision procedure that you use on the ground uh, in the heat of the moment to make decisions. Uh, decision procedures are things that are sort of, a good decision procedure is gonna be uh, specialized to your particular psychological biases. And the goal of the decision procedure is to help track the truth as determined by a theory. And so to give an illustration of that, um, just outside of moral philosophy, think about a, a person trying to catch a fly ball. So the theory about, like the best theory about fly ball catching is there's a bunch of physics equations that explain where the path is, the ball is going to land. And a good uh, outfielder is someone who tracks the ball as determined by those equations. That said, no outfielder actually thinks about the equations when they're catching the ball. Even a mathematical genius couldn't do the math fast enough to catch the ball that way. So the thing they use on the ground is something called the gaze heuristic where they look at the ball and they keep their eyes at a constant angle and move their body while keeping their eyes constant and that gets them to the ball. So, you know, I, I think it's not as big of a problem. The other thing though is, uh, if anything, the other side is more dangerous because if you look at say the psychology of conformity, if you look at human history, what you find is that people are not biased to make mistakes in resistance all that much. If anything, they go the other way. We're deferential, we're conformist, we, most of us will kill another person because a person in a white lab coat told us to do so. If people are told to murder people uh, by, say, their army sergeant, they do so. Uh, when they see people on the streets being like, abused by police officers, they don't intervene. Usually, instead, they just film it and then complain about it later. Uh, you know, we are the kind of people who will gas Jews in, in a concentration camp because we're ordered to do so. We are, we're conformist, deferential, and cowardly. So if anything, yeah, I, I, I'd love you to expand on that. What you call it wrongful obedience. What, what, what are some of the underlying psychological factors there? What's that play? Yeah, so you're probably everyone knows the Milgram experiment, but if not, uh, this is you know, something Stanley Milgram conducted at Yale and has been replicated a number of times uh, right after World War II. He wanted to know why is it all of these uh, soldiers in Germany just went along with the Nazi, uh, with the Nazi ideas? Why is it that people are, are killing people in gulags in the Soviet Union? You know, your order to, to exterminate people en masse and people say yes. So he wanted to know what explains that. And uh, so the experiment he does was he gets someone in a, I mean, there's a number of varieties of it, but basically you get two people to walk in. One's an actor and one's the subject. The subject doesn't know the other person's an actor. You flip a coin, turns out the coin's weighted, and you tell the uh, actor, oh, I mean, so you tell the subject, okay, you're going to be uh, a teacher in this experiment and the other person's going to be a learner. So you put that person in another room and you tell them, 
you're going to ask this person a series of questions. If they get the question wrong, you have to administer a small electric shock, and the shocks are going to get progressively more severe. You put them in front of this machine that's labeled with voltages. Uh, towards the end of it, it will have it'll have actually a warning that says severe electric shock danger, and then the final switch just says XXX. So what's happened is uh, they've trained the other person, the actor, who the subject thinks is another subject, to start answering the questions wrong. And then you see, will this person, the subject, actually administer what they think are electric shocks? And then at a certain point, you have the uh, actor stop answering the questions. So for all the person who's doing the shocks now, uh, this person's passed out. They, they've been electrocuted so much they've gone unconscious. And then they, what usually happens at this point when the person stops responding is the subject turns to an experimental overseer and says, um, I'd like to know, uh, what am I supposed to do here? He's not answering. And the overseer says, the experiment requires that you treat non-answers as wrong answers and continuing administering shocks. And then the question is, will people continue? Turns out that something like 65% of people in the US will go all the way to the end, electrocuting people, as far as they know, they, the person's dead or they passed out. You know, they've gone past a sign that says- So crazy. And this has been replicated around the world. And I've even done this in my own classes uh, just, to, just to test it out. Now, I haven't shocked anyone, but I'll do things like, I'll give students the Milgram experiment as a reading. And then I'll say to them, okay, so do you think, now that you understand the Milgram experiment, do you think you would fall for it? And they're like, no, no, no. We understand that this is a conformity is a horrible bias that we all have, but we ourselves are immune to it. I go, great, that's awesome. So next week, we're going to do an experiment in class. And uh, what I need you to do is go down to the dining hall and steal a bunch of forks. It's really important that you don't bring your own forks. You need to steal them from the dining hall. And the students will go, uh, okay. And then, you know, sometimes some people say, like, look at me funny. And I'll look in the eye and go, you know, the experiment requires that you continue. So then the next week, they come in, they all bring in forks. And I'll say, okay, what do you think the fork experiment was for? And they go, we have no idea. And they say, it was to see whether you would steal a fork because I told you to do so. <laughs> I've done other weird. versions of that where I get them to like disrupt other classes and things. It's weird because even teaching people the Milgram experiment does not make them into it. I take it the, there's no chapter in Cass Sunstein's book on libertarian paternalism about nudging people away from authority. Huh? Has anyone thought about this as a, as a cognitive bias that needs to be uh, worked against? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if there's any sort of pater anti- Paternalism against authority. I've never seen anyone write about that, and uh, they should. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the problem is, like, it's almost always people who think, well, I, I want to socially engineer other people, and so what I need them to do is, like, conform to my social engineering. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess, I guess maybe one objection might be to, to the theory of uh, moral resistance is, uh, you know, in any particular instance, it makes sense. But is there a way in which respect for legal authority is some kind of public good? And if, if you know, too much of this goes on, we'll start to lose respect for the law and the, the people who enforce it. And, and somehow this is like a negative externality that, that makes our society worse off. I don't know. I kind of th I'm trying to argue by analogy. Aren't there people who say, oh, if you break the laws, if we have a society where the law is not respected because people break it, then we end up being a less trustworthy society. Yeah, there is something like, uh, there's an empirical claim here, which seems to be right, at least in the abstract. There's this thing called generalized social trust, um, which is the tendency of people to assume that other people mean well and give them the benefit of the doubt, um, and the tendency to go along with certain background rules. And, and when you measure that and then look at for other kind of measures of success in a society, you tend to find a strong correlation 
and it seems to be causal. Um, that's true. Uh, but there's also a question about what is the optimal level of deference to authority? What is the optimal level of sort of individual resistance to, um, uh, to what are seen as bad laws? And we might be over the curve of optimality. We might be too far on the other side. The other problem, I mean, when you're trying to imagine this, you're almost imagining something like a system in which, you know, the population becomes infatuated with my book and all accepts the thesis and the arguments, and then the government agents don't. They continue acting as is. You know, like they're going to continue to, because part of the, the second half of the book is all about, well, what if you are a government agent? What should you do? And I'm arguing like, no, you, just because you take a paycheck doesn't mean you get to enforce unjust laws. Just because you make a promise doesn't mean that you acquire an obligation to enforce something that's unjust. You still are bound by common sense morality. Um, right. So if you're serving on a jury and you think the law is unjust, uh, do you have a duty or is it permissible? Do you, do you go so far as to say you have a duty to subvert the law or nullify it? Yeah, so by the way, I mean, to make it clear, I'm not saying that you have a duty, you have a permission or a duty to subvert the law when you think it's unjust. This isn't, in a sense, this is resisting two kinds of voluntarism. Uh, the view that government can just decide what justice is, I think that's wrong. And also, I think it's not true that you can decide what justice is. I think either, either we can become nihilists about morality and hold morality as a bunch of bullshit, or we have to be somewhat <laughs> this and say that, well, it's not, it's not what anyone decides, it's just a set of rules, and you know, how we discover them is a good question, but it's not simply up for me or for the government to decide. So, yeah, I, but I did hear you, you have talked about instances where, yeah, you mentioned Dred Scott, but also, let's say Obama was, there. you weren't able to uh, find the exact location of the quote or something, but I think he, Obama was talking about protectionism in Ohio when he was running for president at some point, yeah. and his chief economic advisor, Austin Goolsby, yeah. yeah, just admitted that, oh, he's just lying to get the votes, but he doesn't really believe that. And, and you're fine with that. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, in a sense. So yeah, for the jury and the lying case, I, I think I want to treat them the same way. Uh, I think it's permissible to subvert an unjust law. And then whether it's an obligation depends upon sort of the, uh, the potential punishments you might say, see. So if you think it's like, I can't be punished for uh, hanging the jury here, then sure, you have an obligation to do it because you're already on the jury and doing the right thing costs you nothing. On the other hand, if you're walking down the street and you see like the equivalent of like the, the Michael Hubbard, the third case, this is a guy in Euclid who, um, he, he went, you can watch the whole video online. You can see what happens. He goes very slightly past the stop sign. He still stops, he has his blinker on, and then he takes a right. The police pull him over and as soon as he gets out of the car and they immediately just start beating the crap out of him, and not only they subdue him, he, he resists in the sense of he puts his hands up to try to prevent them from pummeling his face. That's the only kind of resistance he has. And even once they have him subdued and prostrate and lying on his tummy, they still pum pummel the back of his head. So I think in a situation like that, if you saw that and you had like a gun or pepper spray or something, it'd be permissible to intervene to stop them because for all you know, they're going to kill him. So yeah. Uh, in case Maybe the force of your book, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to really read it, but it seems like that there are a lot, we're not talking about ed, rare edge cases. It seems to be that in our day-to-day -day life, there are lots and lots of pretty clear-cut cases where government agents are acting unjustly. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't think these are really hypotheticals. In fact, every, every case in the book is based upon a real-life case. And in an earlier draft of it, I actually just listed those cases and listed the names. And then we had a, a lawyer go over, like the press had a lawyer go over every one of the cases and then said, well, we're going to turn them into sort of hypotheticals, and then you'll just reference the case and say it's, it's similar to this, in part because uh, 
you know, there's a chance for lawsuits or something if this police dispute or the agent in question disputes the characterization. Mm, crazy. Um, and even though, even though you probably prevail because you'd be like, well, here's the YouTube video. We can all just watch it. Uh, the goal is to simply avoid the lawsuit in the first place. So yeah, these are all, these are all based on real cases. And yeah, the, the Obama one is, it's a bit harder for the following reasons. So, um, you know, most people think that lying is permissible in self-defense. There's not an absolute obligation against lying. And the common case that people use is something called the murder at the door case. So you're, you know, you're hiding, let's say, Jewish people in your attic in Germany in 1944, and you get a knock from the SS, and they're like, excuse me, we're just wondering if you have any Jews hiding in your attic. attic. Uh, almost everyone thinks it's permissible for you to lie in this case. Even there's a philosopher named Immanuel Kant who's often read as saying that it's not permissible, but even that's a mistake. Even he thinks it's permissible. Okay. Uh, so, you know, no one, no one thinks you have an obligation to tell the, to tell them, no, no, it's, um, uh, yeah, I definitely, I can't tell a lie. I have Jews in my, in my attic. I really hope you're not going to go murder them. So the, the thought here is that they're liable to be lied to because they're going to commit an injustice. So in one chapter, I, I try to argue by extension that even badly motivated voters or simply misinformed voters are liable to be lied to. So I use some analogies such as, you know, this is kind of silly, but just because it's, it's a weird case. But, you know, imagine that there's uh, Merlin the wizard um, really wants to help people and he gives you some instructions. He's like, I want you to, you know, I'm going to put this magic spell on the scroll here and I need you to like burn it and that will make the spell release. But through his ignorance and misinformation, he puts the wrong spell down. So the spell will actually hurt people rather than help him. And because he's so stubborn, you just can't convince him he made a mistake. I think you'd be permitted to lie to Merlin and said that you burned the spell or, you know, to switch it with a good spell <laughs> in order to protect other people from his mistake. Um, and I think that applies even to voters. The difficulty, though, is when you're lying to voters, you're not just lying to the bad voters who have it coming. You're lying to the good voters who maybe don't. So then I think, go back to the murder at the door case. Imagine that um, while the SS are knocking at my door, my neighbor's sitting out there. My neighbor's a good person. He's not liable to be lied to. So when I say to the SS agents, no, I'm not hiding any Jews in my attic, I'm not just lying to them, I end up lying to my neighbor. I think even in that case, we would think it's excusable and permissible for me to make that kind of lie in order to protect the Jews, even though I do end up deceiving my neighbor who's not liable to be deceived. So similarly, if you're, you know, if you have a bunch of really ignorant voters who are going to, if given the power, um, put in a number of destructive laws that will not just hurt other people, but hurt them then I think, yeah, you can, you can deceive them and then do the right thing. You know, so like, imagine you're, it's like the South in 19, you know, 1958, and you know the only way you could possibly win is by saying you endorse Jim Crow. So you lie through your teeth and say, yeah, I'm going to enforce Jim Crow, and then as soon as you get power, you overturn it. I think you've done the right thing, even though you do deceive some people who are liberal and know that you shouldn't enforce Jim Crow. Gotcha. I, in, a, in another lifetime, I did interview uh, for a job with the CIA as a clandestine agent. <laughs> and I, I, they, they ended up passing on me. I remember that uh, in in some of my statements, I, I explicitly said I would not torture people, and I and I've always wondered if that was something that set me, you know, was one of the things that that went against me. Not that I certainly wanted the job, but but do you think that would be permissible in that application for me to lie to the CIA in that instance? Yeah, I think in general, if you think that they're going to do something unjust and they're asking you this question, if it's reasonable for you to think that they're asking you this question in order to like find people who will facilitate injustice, then it's permissible to deceive them in order to put yourself in a position to prevent them from committing that injustice. And you can make mistakes in this case. Um, sometimes you, you think people are doing something wrong and they're not. 
But once again, uh, the common sense theory of self-defense or defense of others already has this built in, like a, issues about how to deal with uncertainty. And the, generally, mm -hmm. the way that it works when we're talking about civilians is that un, the, the risks of uncertainty fall upon the probable perpetrator. So uh, to give an example from uh, the law, I don't remember the name of the case, but it's a famous case. And if I were a lawyer and I have it memorized, uh, there's this case where a guy is being pushed around by a thug. The thug's beating him up. He's smacking him around and so on. And uh, the guy who's being pushed around actually is armed. And so the thug at one point reaches into his pocket and the guy who's being pushed around has a gun himself. He pulls out the gun and he shoots the thug and kills him. It goes to trial and they end up deciding that it was justifiable self-defense because the person who shot the other guy was being attacked. He was not the perpetrator. And they thought it was reasonable and justifiable for him to believe that the person who was pushing him around was reaching for a weapon. And even though it turned out he was wrong, he was just reaching for a pack of cigarettes. They said, nope, the risks and dangers of uncertainty have to fall upon the attacker, not the defender. Gotcha. Interesting. What about... Um... I mean, these are some pretty clear cases where it seems like, as I said, that the uh, probably the severity or the, the response by government agents is disproportional just in the extreme. Um, what about how, how do we determine what's just and unjust? I mean, that's a huge topic. And, I'm, and I start to think, uh, based on some of the things you're saying, I think of like in, in our work, we work with entrepreneurs who are starting companies where they work in, uh, you know, some gray zones when it comes to regulation, or maybe they're bumping up against uh, unjust regulations. Um, to what extent is resistance in those areas, uh, you know, by analogy, the same to what you're talking about? How, how can we decide like, oh, you know, um, you know, this, like, I don't know, let's use Uber as an example, where in, in a lot of cities, there are various rules about you know, needing permits to operate taxis and so on. Is it, you know, is resisting the state by just inventing technologies to subvert it? When, when, how can we decide when that's okay? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I think that it's easy when there are easy cases. You know, the thing about morality is we're all pretty good at common sense day-to-day -day morality. And what I'm basically arguing is that a lot of times we're confused about this because we're making exceptions for the state. So I tend to think we shouldn't make exceptions for the state unless we have a really good reason to think otherwise. So our default presumption is that we treat them the same. But then there are these kind of harder cases where, you know, sometimes it's obvious you should conform to the rule. Sometimes it's obvious you shouldn't. And then there's these harder cases. And some of these I think I'd ask you about, well, look at the history of the regulation. Where did it come from? Are there, say, empirical papers by economists and others on the effects of these things? You know, so if you look at like the uh, the taxi medallion system of New York, and you read about why did that, why was that created? What effect does it have? It's, it's pretty clear that it's deeply inefficient, that it creates monopoly rents for a small number of people, that it undermines the public interest, and that further, the reason the law was passed was never even to promote the public interest. It was pr to promote the benefits of, you know, to pr benefit the few at the expense of the many. And then, you know, unfortunately, this is really quite common with regulation. I'm not, I'm not saying that all regulations are bad, but the problem with a regulatory state is um, once you have the power to create rules that are supposed to benefit the common good, you also have the power to give favors to people. And it follows that people are going to compete to win those favors. And often they'll, they'll actually succeed. And the reason for it is that with most rules um, that you might pass, say like a rule requiring uh, corn to be inside of our gasoline, that's a nice example of it. Um, the reason that rule got passed isn't because it's good for the environment. Uh, it's because the benefits of that rule are concentrated in the hands of the few who have a strong incentive to lobby for it. 
and the costs are diffused among the many who have no incentive to even be aware of it, let alone fight against it. You know, so if, uh, if the corn subsidies I have to pay every year cost me $10, then even though I work in Washington, D.C., it doesn't make sense for me to even bother go down to Congress and lobby against it. Uh, spending, spending 10 minutes, like taking an Uber from my work down to Congress takes more than $10, right? right. So lots and lots of these rules have that kind of feature. So yeah, I think you have to ask, if, if there's not a clear public benefit, if it looks like this is just serving the few at the expense of the many, then that's a pretty good case for thinking it's a rent and you should subvert it if you can. That's interesting. But I, I take it, you're, you're just really laying out the landscape of, uh, uh, the moral landscape of these cases. You're not, uh, you know, putting forth an idea of how to reform institutions and laws, like using resistance as a means of change, are you? No, I'm not. In fact, I try to, I try to say, in fact, it's not an effective means of change. And, um, and we should understand that even the book is really not even about that. If, to just take a, a civilian example, imagine that a woman's walking home at two in the morning and a mugger comes up and tries to like, attack her and rape her and she defends herself and kills him. She's not trying to end the patriarchy. She's not trying to stop rape culture. She's not trying to um, fix the neighborhood. All she's trying to do is stop that immediate injustice from befalling her. She's trying to defend herself from that particular wrong. And that's what resistance is for. It's about defending yourself from that wrong. So the question about fixing the bigger problems when they're systematic is an issue of social change. And violent resistance is not, it's good at stopping individual injustices. It's not clear that it's good at stopping or creating social change. Um, usually that requires legal action. It requires a cultural change. It requires like changing of incentives and how things are paid for. It's, and, and really, in a sense, we don't actually have, uh, economists don't even really have a theory of social change. They, they have to know which institutions are good mm -hmm. and which are bad, but they don't know how to change bad institutions to good. So that yeah. said, um, I, I want to say something about, about violent resistance, though, and its effect on social change. Um, there are two really good books. One is called uh, We Will Shoot Back, and the other is called this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Um, and they're both by historians writing about the history of uh, black resistance to um, white racism and Jim Crow and other kinds of rules in the South. And they say that, and they provide, I think, really overwhelming empirical evidence for this, that the story I got told in sixth grade isn't quite right. It wasn't what, that people in the South are being abused and then there were a bunch of nonviolent protests and they worked and then the laws were changed. Rather, they say, what happened was initially whites were incredibly brutal and violent towards blacks. Blacks responded violently by killing police officers, by resisting, by having, gun like we will shoot back, that's the name of the book, by arming themselves and defending themselves. When they did that, whites turned to less violent forms of oppression because they realized that they'd be resisted with the more violent forms. And then after that, you had the black civil rights movement that we're all familiar with where they used nonviolent resistance as a strategic thing to get sympathy in order to get the laws changed. So both of these books argue that what happened in the 60s, and we haven't even completed that process, but the process of delivering civil rights to Blacks was dependent upon the willingness to resist individual acts of oppression. That's really fascinating. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe one last question I have, and thanks so much for talking to us, is, is just why, why now? Why did you write this book now? What was the inspiration uh, for, for coming to this topic? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, you know, I do think of this as a, in a sense, timeless book. It's not a theory about today. It's a theory about re like resistance that applies to any society that has or ever will exist. But that said, um, you know, I, like others, am watching what's happening on the news. I'm seeing the stories about, uh, you know, innocent people being killed in drone strikes, about um, government agents doing terrible things, about torture and water waterboarding, about 
all of the uh, police abuses that led to uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the, that Black Lives Matter movement, and the, all the protests we've seen around the country. I mean, every day on my news feed, I'm getting stories about police officers who are clearly overstepping their power. So I think we have a problem with um, law enforcement in the U.S. where it's, it is unusually violent and unusually cruel. Um, we have 20, you know, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. We put people in jail for far longer than anyone else does. We make Russia look good and kind and humane. Like, that's how bad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so I think I think I'm I wrote this in part because I'm thinking about those issues, and I I see someone like you know people are filming Eric Garner being choked to death, and I think you know if only someone pulled out a can of pepper spray and just sprayed those guys in the eyes and ran away, he'd be alive. And I think it would be imprudent to do that because they might catch you and shoot you, but it would be heroic. Yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll have to watch that video. I, I do encourage people to watch the, the videos of these types of things. There was one in, I think it was in the last year, it was uh, this, this guy in a hotel and, in Arizona, oh, yeah. and he's on his knees, and, and it looks like he's drunk, and he stumbles, and so the, this, this authoritarian cop just blows him away right there. And it's one of the saddest, most tragic things I've seen in years. He plays Simon Says with him. Uh, yeah, the most difficult that's right. That's right. There are these contradictory ever. orders that the cop is barking as well, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm going to give you a number of orders in a row, and if you make a mistake, I will shoot you. And he does, and then he kills yeah. him. Yeah. It's just so, it's just so awful to watch. And it was absolutely unnecessary. Um, it, it would be easy in a situation like that to subdue this person if you really thought they were dangerous without killing him. And we know that because in other countries, they're able to take care of this. Uh, so granted, Americans own firearms and people in other countries often don't. So it is riskier to pull over an American than a German. But I mean, German, American police officers kill more people per year than Germans fire bullets per year. Okay. I mean, bullets wow. outside of the shooting range. So, you know, in a given year, like the German police might fire 50 bullets. And this month, American police will probably kill 50 people. Wow. Incredible. Sad. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. I really enjoyed uh, learning more about your book and I'm excited to read it. Thanks very much. I appreciate it.